Our text this morning is Proverbs 14, verse 34. So we're going to take a brief break from Psalm 103 where we have been for the last couple of weeks, and we'll try to come back and finish that next time. But today on my heart is this scripture, and let's read it, and then we will encourage you to read it many times in this upcoming week and memorize this short verse. It's easy to do. We have selected it as your memory verse for this week. Memorize it and ponder it and meditate on it and then seek to live out what it teaches us. God's Word says in Proverbs 14, verse 34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Some translations say sin is a disgrace. Sin is a shame to any people. So what is it that makes this verse applicable to us today as uh, Americans? Well, the verse says it's a reproach to any people. So, you know, much of the Old Testament promises are written to Israel under a king in the land with a temple. Let me repeat that. Much of the Old Testament promises are written to a specific people, the people Israel, in their land under a king with a temple and the priesthood and all that comes with the temple. And so... For instance, in Deuteronomy 28, he says, If you obey the Lord, these blessings will come upon you. And if you don't obey the Lord, these curses will come upon you. I will send drought to your crops and your fields. I will cause your herds to not reproduce, etc. And then they build a temple, and Solomon prays at the dedication of this temple, and he says, Lord... If your people experience warfare, when they turn toward this temple and pray, hear from heaven and scatter our enemies. Or when famine comes or pestilence befalls our nation and your people turns toward this house, the temple, and prays, hear from heaven the prayer that is made in this house. And then you've got that very familiar passage, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. We quote it a lot. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And that was written right there in that same context as Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple. And strictly speaking, that promises to Israel, although any nation could certainly benefit by humbling themselves and praying and seeking his face and turning from wicked ways. But to handle God's Word very carefully and precisely and with as much integrity as we can, 2 Chronicles 7.14 was written to Israel in the land under a king with a temple. But this verse, our text for today, says that righteousness exalts a nation, not just Israel, but any nation. The Hebrew word is goy. It refers to the goyim or the Gentiles. It's translated in the King James Version Gentiles, nations, or pagans. 
even pagan nations, if righteousness were to be there, that nation, though it's not Israel, and though it doesn't have the covenant promises God gave to Israel, even that nation will benefit from righteousness, and it will be weakened by sin. Sin is a reproach to who, according to our verse? Any people, any people, any nation. And so that makes this verse applicable to us. We're not Israel. Uh, The church, yes, even us Gentiles, has been grafted in and made descendants of Father Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and, 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 and so are you. Let's praise the Lord. We believe on Father, who Father Abraham believed in. We believe on Father God. And God counts it to Abraham for righteousness, and he counts it to those other ones who are children of faith like Abraham was. And we are grafted into the root and the fatness of Israel. And we are a wild olive branch brought into the true branch. What grace is ours? What grace is ours? And so this verse... Righteousness exalteth, it makes great, it lifts up and makes a nation great, but sin makes a nation brought down. Sin brings down, sin brings disgrace and shame to any nation. So my prayer today is that we will cry out to God for our nation We're a blessed nation. So we can say, God, bless America, please. Continue to bless us and help us. We can say, God, forgive America, please, for we have provoked him to his face many times. Have we not? What kind of people would provoke the living God? And yet we do it all the time. We do it at the highest levels. We do it by passing wicked laws. We do it by not correcting bad laws. It's a provocation of the Most High. So we need to say, God, help America. God, heal this land. I love this country. I do. God, in His providence, let me be born here. I I suspect all of you were born in America, perhaps. No? We had an exception or two. But you have been blessed of God to make this your your country. We have a dual citizenship as Christians. Philippians 3.20 says we're citizens of heaven. Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior. There's our chief citizenship, a heavenly one. But we are also blessed and providentially dealt with by God to be born here and to be citizens of the United States of America. And I'm thankful for that. I'm ashamed of my country at some points. I grieve for our country over many things, but I still will pray, God, please bless and help this country and its leaders and its citizens. Because what makes a nation great? Is it its military? Is it its economy? Is that what makes a nation great? According to this verse, a strong military, a robust economy. Is it political 
skill? Is that what makes us great? Beloved, what makes any nation great ultimately is its piety, its reverence to God. And what weakens any people is its irreverence and its lack of piety and godly ethics. Piety is what you believe and bow before God in reverence, in heart submission, and ethics is how you live out your life in light of that reverence. And so it is godliness that makes a nation great, and it is sin that disgraces any people. This is true on a national scale of a nation, and it's true on a personal scale as, as well. Your life will be blessed by God, not by your physical strength. Many people are strong and muscled and ripped and toned and wicked, and God will bring that wicked, strong man down. Some men and women are sharp and brilliant to be able to figure out things, invent things, and and come up with amazing technology, and yet in their heart they are in utter rebellion against their maker. And they're not great because of their intellect. They're not great because of their brawn and their bulging biceps. Sin disgraces any people. It's true on a personal scale. It's true in the family. It's true in the home. It's true personally and nationally. And we would expect nothing less, would we? God made this world, the triune God. It didn't just happen. There is a creator of the, of the creation. How, how, how profound is that? There is a creator of this creation. It didn't just happen. Somebody made it. And what idiocy, what foolishness to fight against that clear, plain truth. And yet, such is the heart of man, they will fight against the clear light of creation. There is one who made this universe, and he, being just, set in place just boundaries and and laws. And if a man or woman or a family or a nation fights against the built-in justice that God made in this world, though fallen, and yet it's still His world. If we fight against His justice and His laws, we will not prosper. We will not prosper. We would expect that. What I'm trying to say is sin has a built-in punishment that comes with it. You can't sin with impunity. You can't sin and succeed. Sin has a built-in whipping that comes with it. The way of the transgressor is hard. You can choose to kick against God, but it's not going to go well with you. You can choose to rebel. You can say, it's my choice, and I want to live my life this way. Well, you're free to live it that way, but you're not free to pick whether or not the consequences come to you in living against rebellion to God, are you? There's a built-in punishment with sin, and we would expect that living in God's universe. He has designed it that way. Now, I know I'm talking today to sinful people, and I'm a sinful man myself. 
So what am I saying to us? I'm saying as we realize the seriousness of our sin, we do what God says to do about it. We confess it. We repent of it. We turn to Him for grace. We turn away from that willful, self-centered, prideful orientation of our lives, and we turn in humility to the Lord. And we know that unless we're walking uprightly before Him, we will not succeed, either in this life or in the life to come, beloved. Either in this life or in the life to come. We know this, don't we? You haven't learned anything new yet, have you? And I'm not... uh, probably going to teach you anything new today, but I want to remind us all of some truths from this verse of Scripture. So let's talk about righteousness for a second. What is righteousness? Who gets to define that? Who writes the dictionary and tells us what the word means and what the concept is? Well, God is a God of righteousness. It is an attribute of the Creator. He is a righteous God. He is a righteous God. Amen. Psalms eleven seven that we read at the beginning of the service. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. He is a righteous God and he loves righteousness. And he detests and rains fire and brimstone upon the unrighteous, it says there in Psalm 11. So it's an attribute of God. God is righteous. This is what he is like. This is the kind of God he is. He is a righteous God. And secondly... He requires his creation to be righteous. We're made in his image, and he has called us to be righteous. We're not to be wicked and lawless. We're not to be autonomous, being a law unto ourselves and being the king of our little world and being able to say, I don't believe that. I'm going to do it this way. Well, create your own world and then do it that way. But until then, you live in his world, and you must do it his way. If you want to create a universe where you're God, go ahead. But until then, you're walking on another's property. You're breathing another's air. You're using another's resources, and he sets the rules. And so you can either conform to his commands, this righteous commanding God, or you can be in rebellion. God, who is righteous, calls his highest creation, the men and women that he made, to be righteous as well. Listen to Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who can stay with you, Lord? Who can dwell in your holy hill? Who can fellowship with you? Who can know you? Who can walk with you? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who works righteousness. Okay, well, who is that? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? And who works righteousness. Well, ultimately that condemns all of us. But here's the third point. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides a righteousness to those who are not righteous. This is where we sing and shout and jump and leap and dance and celebrate. That in the work of Jesus, God who is righteous, who calls us to be righteous and we're not, We don't have clean hands and a pure heart. We haven't always protected our neighbor. We have backbitten our neighbor. We have broken our words. We have lied. We have strayed. 
But in the gospel, Jesus is treated as the sinner by being punished for my sin so that God might then in grace treat me as if I had never sinned and he treats me as he treats Jesus, his righteous son. Did you, did you hear me? It's glorious, isn't it? The righteousness of the gospel makes unrighteous sinners righteous. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the gospel is revealed how a man or woman can be right before God. And the gospel lifts up Jesus and it says, here's the God-man. Here's the sinless, fully divine and fully human, glorious person called Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And he, though sinless, is crushed for sinners. And all who will believe on him are totally forgiven and given his righteousness. It's the gospel. Again in Romans 4, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. How was Abraham declared righteous? He believed God. It was faith. It wasn't his circumcision. That came later. He was called righteous before circumcision. He was called righteous way before Moses Abraham lived before Moses. So it wasn't by the law that Abraham was declared righteous. It was by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And the writer there goes on to say, Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that works not but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4, 3 through 5 And that's the glory of the gospel. Righteousness is given to believing sinners when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God counts them and calls them righteous. No wonder we get together and celebrate and sing and weep with joy. To think of how graciously God has dealt with us, wretches and rebels and ruined And yet now righteous in Christ by faith in his perfect work and his sinless being and his accomplished mission on the cross. There's our faith and there we are made whole and there we are right with God. And there we are given what we do not have, an alien righteousness, the reformers called it. A righteousness outside of us. It's not in us. There's no righteousness there. It comes from outside of us. It's given to us. It's imputed to us graciously. And then this righteousness that exalts a nation, this righteousness that is an attribute of God and required of his creatures and given in the gospel, this righteousness is to be forthly displayed by believers. We are to be known as righteous men and women. If we name the name of Jesus, let us live righteously, beloved. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let righteousness cover you 
and all of your organs. Let all that you do be a righteous act, a righteous life. Or he says in another place, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not what you eat and drink. It's not the list of kosher and non-kosher foods and external ceremonial things. The kingdom of God is righteousness. Being right with God and then living righteously in this world. And it's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's the kingdom. There's a citizen of the kingdom right there. A righteous, peace-loving, joy-filled man or woman. There's one in the kingdom. And so righteousness exalts a nation. There's some thoughts with regards to righteousness. But sin. This is one of those proverbs that we often find contrasting phrases. This, but this. And he puts two opposites side by side so we can understand the beauty of one and the disgrace of the other. One is this, and it lifts up and makes great a nation, any nation. And this other thing is the opposite. It tears down, undermines, weakens, and destroys, and disgraces, and shames any people. Sin, the opposite of righteousness. The opposite of conformity to God's word. The opposite of reverence to God. The opposite of the fear of God. Sin is a disgrace to any people. We look out across our country today. What do we see? Well, we see contradictions everywhere. We see some things that are good. And we rejoice. And we see some things that are wrong. And we weep. God says, for instance, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder. It's the sixth commandment brought down by Moses from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not kill. It literally is thou shalt do no murder because not all killing is wrong. Did you know that? Some killing is God ordained. Capital punishment, for instance. God says if a man kills another human being and made in the image of God, they forfeited their right to live. They should die. And so that's given to governments to carry out the death penalty. I believe it's a biblical thing. That's not murder, but it is killing, and it's a righteous killing. Uh, there is the category of what some have called a just war, where, for instance, I'll give you two examples of a just war. God sent his people, Israel, into Canaan, and he told them, wipe out those wicked Canaanite peoples. Destroy them. It was God's way of bringing judgment on a corrupt, perverse, wicked people. And I've heard people say through the years, well, I could just never go along with and believe on a God that would be that cruel. Beloved, God's not on trial. Uh, You're not the judge that gets to sit in and judge whether God was right or wrong to do this. We're the ones in the docket. 
We're the ones on the we're the ones being tried. God is judge, and ultimately He will judge every sinner justly. But that was what would be called maybe a just war where God uses instruments, namely in that situation, his people to destroy, to bring justice upon a wicked culture. And if you want to study how perverted the Canaanite culture was, you can find it. And then a more contemporary example would be the allied forces against Hitler, a just war, a just war. And I'm thankful for the sacrifices made in that hard, hard pursuit. Someone said if there had not been strong, willing people to stand against a madman, then we would all today either be speaking German or we would be lampshades. A just war to stop a tyrant, a madman, an evil man. So that's not wrong, that kind of killing capital punishment, a just war. Self-defense is a third answer. I believe in the scriptures that a man is required. I believe it's a righteous thing for a man to protect the innocent in self-defense, his wife, his children. And I believe our laws allow for that. Luke 22 is the scripture. Jesus said, if you, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy a sword. I'm about to leave you. I've been your protection, but I'm going to leave you now, and you need to resort to more normal means of protection. And Exodus 22 is the other scripture that seems to teach you. A man breaks into your house, it's night, and you strike him and he dies, you're innocent. You didn't murder him, but you defended your home. And it's a godly, I believe, duty for the strong, righteous to protect the innocent, weak. So there's some examples of killing that's not murder. There's a whole lot of murder going on in this country that's not right. Let's start with the babies. The babies in the womb of the mother. I don't even want to talk about it, but we, we butcher them up, suck them out, poison them, hack them. Righteous or unrighteous? It's a law protected by the law. It's a bad law. A law that needs to be changed. But, but what if we change the law? Will that make those abortion doctors now right? It'll just take the law out of their hands. They'll still be a great sinner in need of a Savior. But we can put a Band-Aid on that because it's hemorrhaging. Let's bandage it up if we can. That's wicked. These six things that the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And one of those seven is hands that shed innocent blood. Here are hands. They're dripping with blood. It's not the blood of a guilty person that they have justly killed. It is the blood of the innocent. And God sees all the innocent blood that's shed. That is not strengthening our nation, beloved. We are being weakened and undermined. A million a year, over a million a year, this is a bloody place. May God have mercy on us. It's not a political issue. It's not a Republican versus Democrat issue. It is a moral issue. It is the Holocaust of our day. 
Speak clearly about it when you can. God makes life in the womb. He causes the miracle of conception when, when at the time that's imperceivable, un- unknown by, the, by even the mother who will carry this baby. She doesn't even know she's pregnant. God is knitting together a human being. He's giving them features and he's fashioning them according to his plan. And what arrogance is it that we would go right into that holy place and destroy? There's that. There's a whole, uh, we could spend that a long time there. Sin is a disgrace to any people. God made male and female. He brought the woman to the man. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But today we've got uh, 56 genders, I'm told. We snicker at that. And it's, it is. It's, uh, we say uh, the idiocy is almost comical. It is. But, beloved, God made male and female. And to redefine gender is rebellion against the maker of gender. Gender is not fluid. You can't choose who you'd like to be. You are who you are. You're male or female. It's a good thing that God did. And we think we know better than God, and so we're going to undo it and redo it. This is our nation. And that male and female was brought together, and God blessed them, and he pronounced the first blessing upon marriage in the Garden of Eden. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. What a scene that was. God, the minister of the first wedding, bringing them together and blessing them and joining them together and pronouncing his blessing upon them. Today we've redefined uh, family and marriage and we think we're progressive. We think we're furthering discussion, being we're open-minded. We're not prude and primitive and holding on to dusty Ancient things that we've outgrown, we're, 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 we're better than that now. We're smarter. We're progressive. And we're kicking against the creator of marriage, the creator of male and female, the creator of life. Now we've got men with men and women with women. And Romans chapter 1 says that is abominable to the maker of marriage. That is a rejection of the God who defines what marriage is. How can we succeed? How can we be prosperous? How can we be exalted? Righteousness exalts a nation. Are these things I've just described to you righteous? And then we've got corruption. God says, thou shalt not kill, which means thou shalt do no murder, literally. An innocent person should be protected, not murdered. 
And so is there brutality in the land among police? I've seen it. Mama, you want to talk to our congregation a while about police brutality? We, we tasted it, didn't we? A cop killed my daddy. You, you can look it up and read the story. Him and some other criminals. I know what police brutality looks like and feels like. But I love the police because they're God's ministers. There are some corrupt ones, and good ones will stand up to the corrupt ones and call it for what it is. But police are ordained by God. They're the thin blue line. They're God's ministers in Romans 13 sense to protect the innocent, to punish the evil and reward the good. That's the definition of human government of which police are given delegated authority to protect the innocent and to punish the evil. Are there crooked and abusive policemen? Yes. Just as there are crooked doctors and crooked lawyers and crooked teachers and crooked preachers. And I frankly fear a crooked preacher more than I do a crooked cop. Because a cop may kill your body, but a crooked preacher may doom your soul to hell by telling you lies. But there's corruption at every level of society, top to bottom. There's wicked, sinful people. So thou shalt not kill, God says. Thou shalt do no murder, commandment number 6, Exodus 20. And he goes on to say two commandments later, thou shalt not steal. And we could take those two commandments and we could apply it to the headlines of tomorrow, couldn't we? Don't kill innocent life and don't destroy somebody else's property. This looting and this mobs are godless. They're not peaceful protesters. We are allowed peaceful protest in this country. We are allowed under the First Amendment, the freedom to assemble. Among other things, we're given the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech. We can say not unlimited freedom of speech. Some things I cannot say because when it crosses the line and slanders you or is libelous to you, my freedom stops there. I can't slander you and call it freedom of speech. It is not unlimited freedom of speech, but it is, we have freedom of speech. We can say and we can print. We have freedom of press. We don't have to have the king's permission to print things. And we have freedom to peaceably assemble. It's one of the things in the First Amendment that the founders saw fit to put an adverb onto. They said the freedom to peaceably assemble. The others were just freedom of religion and freedom of press and freedom of speech, but we have freedom to peaceably assemble. And that was wise to put that little proverb in there. Assemble. But again, that's not unlimited. The court, our court, one of the three branches of our government, the Supreme Court, has ruled that you can't assemble and protest a funeral. Thanks mostly to the, that bunch out in Westboro Baptist that was protesting and picketing these military funerals. And the Supreme Court ruled that you've got to stay far enough away, so much distance and so much time must be both before and after a funeral for you to assemble and protest. And you can't protest, the Supreme Court also said, on another person's prof- property. You can't go into private property and protest. 
So even the freedom to peaceably assemble is not an unlimited freedom. It is governed by decency. Don't protest funerals. And it is governed by respecting the property of another. Apparently, God is okay with private property ownership. Because he says, don't steal what's not yours. One of his commandments is, thou shalt not steal. Marxism or communism, another form of government, says there is no private property. And what you have is everybody's. And the government will deal with it as it sees fit. But God says, apparently, he's okay with private property because he says one of the commandments, thou shalt not steal. So something is is his, it's not yours. Something is hers, don't take it. Because it's theirs, don't steal it. Black lives do matter because they're made in the image of God. They're a fellow image bearer. We have the same ancestor, Adam. Daddy Adam, we're all cousins. The brown, the yellow, the pale, they're my cousins because we all share an ancestor. We all bleed red regardless of the level of melanin in our skin. We all bleed red. We all come from Adam. Of course they matter. But the organization, Black Lives Matter, is a wicked, corrupt organization that is hell-bent on destroying this country that says in their own statements that we are a trained Marxist organization. It was started by some transgender women that said, we are going to destroy the nuclear family, which is a husband and wife having babies. We're going to destroy that, do away with that system. We're for abortion. We're anti-Israel. And we're against this male and female gender category. And so this group of evil protesters have hijacked and played on the sympathies of, of everybody. When we see an injustice take place, we ought to rise up in righteous anger against it. But we ought not to let some other group hijack that with the guise of destroying this country and remaking it into a Marxist communist country. And I'm trying to say, not political statements here today, I'm trying to say what I believe is a Proverbs 14, 34 application righteousness like not murdering and like not stealing that exalts a nation but sin disgraces any people and there's so much more we could talk about but I fear that we do a lot of talking. We need to get in the trenches and start living it. Somebody, I think, has insinuated that I don't speak out enough on social media. My view on social media is basically that it's a joy killer. And, and, and for me, it's a time thief. And so I don't feel the need. Some, some people do. They feel that it's part of their stewardship, and they do a lot better at it than I do. Isaac's one, for instance. I think he does a pretty good job giving some good gospel witness on social media. But that's not part of my stewardship. 
And so I do very little of that. I get on Facebook to see my grandchildren and my boys. And if somebody, if you see something on mine, it's probably because my wife has tagged me in some of our grandchildren's pictures. But if God puts you there and, and, and gives you that little arena of the battlefield to fight on, fight right there. And, and see that as your stewardship and be righteous right there. But know that really a lot has been talked and we've said and said and said, how about let the people who are Jesus' disciples get out in the trenches and love one another like we're supposed to. Do battle in the trenches where God has you. You've got people around you at work. You've got people that you know. Be righteous with them. Be impartial with all men. Show what it is not to be a racist. We're not racist. I'm not a racist, although I'm a sinner, and therefore I'm capable of it. And you are too, and every person is. Every person is. I don't have a monopoly on it, and no other race does either. We're all kin to Daddy Adam, and so we're all in a sinful race. And as sinners in a sinful race, wherever you look, is it the legislative branch of our government? There's sinners there. Is it the judicial branch of our government? There's sinners under those black robes. Is it the executive branch? There's a sinner there. It always will be. You can dig at any history, any president's history, beginning with our first one. And if you look hard enough, you'll find some pretty serious flaws. And yet, beloved, many nations of the world are still trying to get to America. Why? Because we're perfect? No, but because there's a, an opportunity here and a freedom here and resources here and blessings here. So let's pray for our country. Let's be righteous. Let's renounce sin, starting with your own. Starting with your sin. Look in the mirror and talk to that person there and say, before I try to clean up this person beside me, I'm going to start working right here on this center. I'm going to take the log out of my eye so I can help you with your speck. Because, say it with me, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word that both feeds us and whips us. It comforts us and it disturbs us at the same time and at different times, perhaps. It makes our heart soar with joy and it makes us weep with brokenness. Your word is perfect. It is beautiful. It is timely. It is inspired of the Spirit of God. And therefore, it is the true doctor to our souls. You are the true psychologist Blessed Holy Spirit, as you apply your word, you do not use human wisdom, which is perverted and fallen and self-righteous. You put before us a 
triune, perfect God who calls us to righteousness and grants us in grace a righteousness that we don't have and then sends us out into a world to be righteous. Raise up this church, this people, and others that might be the salt and the light in a dark and rotting culture. Knowing, O Lord, that only you can fix the milieu of evils, the widespread, far-reaching, disastrous consequences of sin. And you will do so by making a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And it will only happen when you come, Lord Jesus. And so we will not be overly optimistic, but we will seek to not be pessimistic and do nothing and shrug our shoulders. We will seek to be righteous and realistic and follow your will for your church. Lord, within this nation called the United States of America, there's a new nation, another nation. We read in 1 Peter 2 that we are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people belonging exclusively to you, that we should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so within this nation, there is a righteous remnant called a holy nation, The church of the firstborn. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood washed. The twice born. The spirit sealed. The Bible loving and heaven bound followers of the Lamb. Who Lord may be hated for his name's sake. And scorned by men. But help us not to care for this. Either way. Give us courage and loving hearts. May we speak the truth with tears in our eyes. May we be full of grace and truth and speak the truth in love at all times. Help us, O Lord. Help this church. Help me. Help our family. Help each family in this church. Help our country local and national. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to work righteousness before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.